The employers that we've implemented these strategies with over the last 20 plus years are seeing level increases or decreases in their costs. They're not absorbing the trend increases of the past of 12% to 14%. Hello, comrades. My name is Quinn Peterson, and this is the Payer Revolution Podcast, where it's my job to persuade the leaders of American businesses that they can take control of their employee health plans and reform healthcare as a side effect. Today, my guest is Dennis McCormack, who is an insurance veteran with almost 30 years of experience in the industry. He has an amazing depth of knowledge, going all the way back to the days before President Clinton brought healthcare up to the bully pulpit. Dennis has got a great background, so much experience. I'm excited to talk with him. Welcome, Dennis, to the podcast. Thank you, Quinn. It's nice to be together in person, six feet apart. Very much so. With all of your experience, I'd like to start off with a question about what you've noticed has changed over the last 30 years. Specifically, what's the most surprising thing you've seen in this last 30 years of healthcare? the um, high cost of increase due to the Affordable Care Act. So the biggest thing that's happened is the Affordable Care Act, the implementation, the regulation, and the cost spike because of. So since 2012, when it was implemented, premiums have tripled in cost. So prior to 2012, you could, as an individual, you could probably find a medical plan for 175 to $200 a month. Now the average employee, single employee premium in the state of Utah is pushing $600 a month or more. That's outrageous. Well, with a change like that, there have to have been a lot of market responses to that. What market responses have you seen to that surprising increase? Carriers moving to level-funded health plans and more employers moving to that model and partial self-funded health plans. So in the Affordable Care Act is medical loss ratio. That's a component that requires employer or carriers, excuse me, if they don't spend at least 80% of the premiums collected on claims, they have to rebate the difference back. So it effectively reduced their administration or profit to 20%. Prior to ACA, they were making 35, 40%. So they all created, with the exception of a couple of local brands, they've all created level funded plans that now can be medically underwritten, and so price is based upon the risk that's in the group. And these plans, the model gives the carriers more profitability, but it also allows the employer to participate in that profit, because that's the model behind level funding and partial self-funding, is that the employer um, keeps, if not all of the profit, a portion of the profit. So we've heard this term level funded come up in the podcast in the past. Could you remind us what it is that, what what is the difference between a partial self-funded and a level funded? Excellent. So in a level funding, it's a bundled product. So whether it's Cigna or Aetna or United Healthcare or any other major brand name, it's a bundled product where they're the administrator and the reinsurance carrier. Whereas in a true partial self-funded model, there are three components or pillars. The first is the employer sponsoring the plan. They go out and find a third-party administrator, a TPA, to administer the plan. So they act as the carrier to process, pay claims, disease management, case management, and so forth. And they have a reinsurance carrier that takes the real risk, the really large risk. 
So is this an outcome of ACA? Was it written into the law or what is it an organic response to the law? Well, it's organic, but prior to ACA, it was a, a product that was available, but there weren't that many employer groups participating because the broker community doesn't really promote it that much. And the reason they don't is the brokers either don't understand it, it's too cumbersome in their mindset, even though it truly isn't, uh, and they tend to make more money when they sell fully insured plans. Sure, sure. Now, we've heard in the podcast in the past that fully insured plans are decreasing pretty rapidly in popularity, it seems, across the market. Has that been your experience? We have a long ways to go. <laughs> it's still the dominant product in the marketplace. And if you think about you know, what the economy of the United States is, it's small businesses. And in the small business realm, fully insured is the dominant product. Probably 60 to 75% of the plans are fully insured. And that's a direct result of the broker community not sharing with an employer what all their options are. I like to ask this question of the guests. So let me ask you the question that I ask everybody. Employee healthcare is hard. It's expensive, it's disheartening, it's distracting, it's frustrating. Why do you think it's worth a business leader's time to pay attention to this? Because of the cost associated with it. I can walk into an employer that has 30 employees and they could be spending four hundred to $500,000 a year. That's a lot of capital. And if we can better manage that capital, capital without them being directly involved in the management of that, and we can save them 25, 30%, they can redirect those funds to their bottom line to use elsewhere. So Dennis, what I wanted to talk to you about today is what I hear you say all the time, which is focus on claims and not on premiums. Yes. So tell me what is the difference between these two focuses, claims and premiums, and how did you arrive at this philosophy? So the difference is in a fully insured plan, you're really managing the premiums by changing the plan design because you have no data as to how your employees are using the product. And you, so you have no data to better manage uh, facilitating them and driving them to be better consumers. So what does an employer do to manage the rising costs? They change the deductible. They move from 500 to 1,000 to 2,000 to 5,000 to 8,000. And so you're really just managing premiums. To manage claims, you need to move to either a level-funded model or a true partial self-funded model. I'm a firm believer every employer group should be uh, either level or partial self-funded in some way. And partial self-funding just means there's reinsurance care that's taken on the big risk. Again, the level funded is a bundled product, so the big risk is covered by the major brand name carrier. The way that I've come to this is just experience in almost 30 years of doing this and seeing the cost of healthcare increasing significantly. So I personally, uh, in uh, 1996, had a medical plan that was a $10,000 deductible for the family. I paid $125 a month. And I remember this clearly because I adopted a girl uh, at that point in time, and I knew what my cost was going to be. Today, I'm on a health savings account, and I personally, for my family, are paying close to $2,200 a month. So that's myself, my wife, and three kids. That's outrageous. That's way more than a mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. And so we came to this conclusion by trying to identify ways that we could help employers better manage the risk in their group, because healthcare is all driven by risk, and implementing strategies like Epic Surgical. So Epic Surgical Center offers uh, a post listing of prices for surgeries, and that's far 
less than any facility or hospital's facility. So if we can package that in with a self-funded medical plan and drive the employees to those facilities, an employer might save twenty, thirty thousand dollars per procedure. Where can they spend that money within their own company, buying inventory, new product line, upgrading, hiring new employees, whatever it might be? We've heard how the focus on premiums is really a detriment. Yes. Um, because it results in this spiraling cost for the employees. And if the business leaders don't want to talk about healthcare, their employees actually do. And yes. they're, they're, they're mad. Yes, they are. Open enrollment meetings are not a fun thing to go to. It's like a mutiny. And they don't know that there's options for them. And there aren't really options at the personal level other than opting out of the whole system and going to the exchanges. Yes. Right? It's almost an insult yeah. to say, yes, our company offers healthcare, but it's eight thousand. you pay the first $8,000 mm -hmm. of it and have your contribution on top of that that comes out to of your paycheck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm all for taking that money and redeploying it into better premiums, better benefits. And that's really what I would like to have this audience understand, understand. is that, How to they do can, that they can take control of this and then plow that money back into their employees, which is where they originally wanted to go, to go in, the first, you know, in the first place. Well, I support that fully. That's what we preach every day. And to manage premiums, you have to have the right, uh, or excuse me, to manage claims, you have to have the right medical plan in place. And that's either got to be partial self-funded or level funded. Otherwise, you have no control over it whatsoever. And there's this misperception that's going to create a lot of work for the employer and their HR team, and that's not the case. It's our job to manage those. Uh, claims and we do that in conjunction with the third-party administrator and then strategic partners like Epic Surgical Center, Mountain Medical, St. George Surgical Center, uh, direct primary care facilities. And so we empower employees to choose where they want to have the service rendered based upon the cost of the service and incentivize them through the medical plan by reducing some of their costs. So for example, uh, we have an employer with about 800 employees that they've recently implemented a surgical uh, facility, Epic, and they've reduced the cost to the employee to $1,500 total for any procedure that is done there versus having to meet a three or $5,000 deductible. That's pretty significant. Um, and, and the reason that there's still a cost is because if an employer has a health savings account, you can't zero out the cost completely. But if an employer isn't offering a health savings account and their trans plans are traditional with co-payments, we encourage them to eliminate the cost completely for the employee because the savings is so significant for the employer. So now you're managing the health care and the employer's not doing it, we're doing it for him. So through our strategic partners and our, our own internal team, helping drive people into those facilities. By doing so, you empower the employees to be a better consumer. And at the end of the day, the only real way to get control of healthcare costs, we're the last bastions because we're the end user of the product. And if we aren't given the tools to manage it, there's no way to control that. I'm a real proponent of partial self-funding and health savings accounts because a health savings account empowers my employees because that's what we give our people. It empowers them to determine where they want to go for the services. And more and more medical providers are posting their pricing to drive people to be consumers and to increase their market share. And it just makes sense. So for example, I personally buy my prescriptions out of Canada because 
in the U.S., the cost of the medication I've used for 30 years has breached $1,200 a month. That's crazy. I can, instead of spending $14,000 a year for prescription, I can buy it out of Canada for $700 a year. And there's just no way to control those costs unless you give your employees the ability through either the tool of the medical plan or the partial self-funding. Now, when we talk about partial self-funding, we don't get the employees into that weed. It's generally the CFO and the owner of the company. And those are the only people that really touch it in addition to HR. But we do the majority of the work. We just report back to the employer how their plan's running, where we see trends that we could uh, identify to maybe change an employer's behavior and how they're spending money. Uh, and uh, help them better manage the claim costs rather than just managing premiums. The employers that we've implemented these strategies with over the last 20 plus years are seeing level increases or decreases in their costs. They're not absorbing the trend increases of the past of 12% to 14%. Right now, I'd say the trend is probably down to 5 or 6%, but we're eliminating those increases. And on top of that, we're generating reserve pool profits for the employer. And in the partial self-funded model, they keep 100% of that profit. So what that means is, um, for example, um, I've got a group that um, we just recently uh, did a review with them. They've been partial self-funded for the last six years, and they have a reserve pool of $288,000. That would have been profit to the insurance carriers of Aetna, United, uh, Select Health, Cigna. But because they're in the partial self-funded model, that employer's keeping that profit. And now they can redirect those monies within the company if they choose to. Um, if they do pull it out, um, it's a taxable event. So we encourage them to use it to either do premium vacations for the employees, increase the um, you know, contributions to premiums, or in increase the value or the quality of the plan, maybe by reducing the deductible and some of the expenses when they actually utilize it. And two weeks ago, I was in Kansas City and I met with a large um, auto uh, dealership, their largest Ford dealership in the Kansas City metro. And they'd never been presented uh, partial self-funding. They have 500 employees. So we presented the model to the owner and the CFO, and they immediately got it to the extent that the owner said, okay, so if I've got a million dollars in my reserve pool, so if I pull it out to use within the company, I'm going to pay 35% tax to the feds. I can use that as collateral to go to a bank and get a loan for 1%. So he immediately saw the economic value of holding on to those funds. And in the fully insured model, you're not going to get that money back. You're giving it to the carrier. Right. So it's almost ironic that your slogan here is manage claims, not premiums. But in the process of managing claims, you are managing premiums because the people who have managed their claims are not getting premium increases. That's correct. That's the end result. All right. And I think every employer is looking for a way to get control of the cost of health care. It's out of control. Monday, I met with the 30-man group, um, and he spends over $400,000 a year in health care. Well, let's talk a little bit more about managing claims. The employees themselves are the keys to managing claims. Correct. They're going to be the ones who are spending the money, incurring the, the costs for the employer. I have heard people express doubt about whether employees really want to take on the role of consumers. What's been your experience? There's a large percentage that do, but there are the old hands that it's just easier to do it the same old way. But the new generation 
is more hands-on through mobile apps and information. They want information. And that generation is really going to be the force that will change healthcare to consumerism because their desire and participation in consumerism is virtually in every aspect of their life, whether it's, you know, buying a, a mobile phone, a laptop or a car or whatever. I mean, Quinn, we grew up in an era where you couldn't buy a car out of a vending machine. You can do that now. You can drive down the freeways in Phoenix and Scottsdale, and they've got vending machines full of cars. So it's the future is uh, empowering people to better manage their own money because healthcare is so expensive. How do you change your mindset if you are the harried CEO or the CFO? My heart just goes out to these guys. Uh, the CFO comes up with a plan that makes sense for their benefit. And then he presents it to the CEO. And the CEO looks at it and she says, yeah, but how is this going to affect my employees? Because I'm going to hear about it from my employees. How do, you, how do you talk to that person, that CFO and the CEO? How do you change their mindset from this is a painful subject to talk about to this is something that you can handle. Well, typically they're, they have a desire to have the discussion because the cost is out of control. But the best way to have that discussion is to share with them other employer groups, referrals, references that have had results with our strategies. And then they begin to become believers because they see other uh, business owners in the marketplace thinking outside of the box. And then it's a matter of having a team in place to manage it that eliminates the pain for the CEO and minimizes disruption for the employees. So we recently just took a school district in mid-year changed networks. And the reason that we changed the network, they're self-funded. We found that the network discounts with a, uh, another network were going to save 55% on claims, which would have equated to $1.4 million uh, additional dollars in savings. So mid-year, you can imagine the HR department and the resistance of changing network. The disruption was just giving the employees a new ID card. We did what's called the geo report to match the providers from the previous network to the new network, and 98% of the individuals crossed over. So most uh, physicians contract with most all carrier networks. And, um, and so it was an easy decision. So we did that implementation for January 1. We did a review on Tuesday with the school district and they were very pleased. The disruption was minimal. And so our, the key is, is having the right team in place to identify the areas that could be painful to the employees, change of physicians, change of ID card, uh, pharmacy. So if we address those things prior to the change, we can prepare the employees and minimize disruption. So an example in the pharmacy world, um, sometimes we'll change pharmacy benefit manager in a self-funded medical plan. And every PBM has different formulary lists and discounts. So we always know there's going to be an impact. So we try and identify ahead of the curve, anyone that's using a medication that might be a specialty drug or require pre-authorization, and we get that process completed before the transition so that doesn't create any, any pain. And, and while we're on that subject, um, if I could veer off for just a minute, 
Here's another area that has really impacted the cost of healthcare, and that's prescription medications. So uh, almost 30 years ago when I started in this business, if you could get any claims data on a group, pharmacy claims represented about 3% of total cost. Today, it's 30, 35%. At night, if you watch television, all of the ads at night are the high-dollar medications, Embril, Humira. You're talking $8,000 to $10,000 a month per medication. We've got clients that have employees using $20,000 a month medications. So how do you control that cost? So in a partial self-funded plan, we found that if we exclude specialty medications from the medical plan and the employees don't have access through the plan, the pharmacy manufacturers have financial programs available to people that don't have access. So if you listen to the ads at night, you'll hear a disclaimer at the end that says, if you can't afford your uh, prescription, AstraZeneca or whoever the manufacturer is can help. They all have financial support. So by excluding that medication from the plan, those people can qualify for the financial support and get the, get the medication at zero cost, and the employer has now removed that from the cost of their health plan. So that's another example of how we manage um, claims versus premiums. But as you pointed out earlier, the direct result of that process lowers the premiums or stabilizes premiums. That is so interesting and so counterintuitive that the way to lower the cost of a prescription is to remove it from the insurance ecosystem. That's correct. And again, how do CEOs and CFOs find that out? Where, <laughs> where are these weird back doors? Where are these counterintuitive mo moments are? There's very few of us in this marketplace that think in these terms. Um, a, a, that's the real difference between a broker and a consultant. And several years ago, I moved to a model of consulting uh, because when you sit down with an employer, and we always request, uh, and if not require, the CFO be in the discussion because they control the finances. If we have a CFO and we've got an HR director sitting at the table, we mention excluding um, specialty medications, you can imagine the response. The HR director get rolls their eyes and they're like, there's no way we're going to do that. And the CFO is like, well, what's the end result of that? And then when we walk them through, as I just did with you, and we explain the process, there's the aha moment. Okay, this makes sense. And again, we have um, the majority of my groups that are partial self-funded, we have excluded specialty meds for this very purpose. So we have um, proven historical proven results of the success of it that we can refer them to that they can vet out and find a comfort level. There's no reason for an employer to spend $120,000 a year on a medication um, that their employee may be taking because it might be a lifestyle choice that drove that medication requirement. And so now an employer could be penalized if their employee is prescribed that high dollar medication. You mentioned HR managers and HR directors. What's your advice to them? Be open-minded. Okay. Be open-minded to looking to uh, ways to disrupt the marketplace without disrupting their employees' lives. Let's talk a little bit more just for a minute about the difference between consulting and broker. You've mentioned it. You are both a consultant and a broker. Uh, what, what do these hats entail? Well, there's different licensing that's required between the two. To be a consultant, you have had to have um, worked in your industry for at least three years, and we're way beyond that. 
And the real difference is a broker is going to generally spreadsheet uh, carrier options. So multiple carriers, multiple plans and say, here, pick one. Whereas a consultant will go in and identify who the client is, what their needs are, where their pain points are, and truly try to identify a strategy to move forward to solve all of those identified problems and issues. And so now you're taking more of a consultant approach rather than, well, here's all my carriers and here's all the plans and here's all the cost. And I've actually taken the role in a few cases where as an acting consultant, it saves the employer significant money because they're not paying broker commissions. They're just paying a one-time fee. And then we marry the, the uh, client direct to the administrator, and then we step out of the way. So uh, another uh, variation or difference between the two is a broker, as we also do brokerage work, I have a service team that takes care of enrollments and terminations and claims resolution. Whereas in a consulting aspect, I don't do those services. We rely on the third-party administrator to deliver those services. Now, why would we do that? Because a lot of times a brokerage firm will duplicate what a carrier or a third-party administrator will do in the way of services. And so sometimes, in many ways, they're double paying for that service. And so that's why a few years back I decided to work in the consulting world because it's out of the box. And again, my motto is to disrupt the traditional healthcare marketplace. Why was Uber so successful? They disrupted the taxicab world, and it made a massive impact in how people transport. Prior to uh, Uber, I don't think you would have found 20 and 30 year olds uh, taking a cab. Now, most of them won't own or drive a car, they ride with Uber. And that's what we're trying to accomplish with the healthcare industry is disrupt it to the point that it changes the mindset. And a good example of that is that recently, uh, Amazon and um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, um, Warren Buffett, and there was one other entity, and I want to say- Citibank. There you go. They teamed up together to try to, f to find a way to disrupt the traditional marketplace, and they failed. Why? Because it's so complex. And so they had corporate individuals that knew how to manufacture and distribute a product, but they didn't know anything about healthcare. So the only true way to really gain control of your healthcare costs is to find the correct strategic partner that understands it and how to massage it and move it forward, uh, implementing strategies that empower the employer and the employee to manage the care. Yeah, I'm just going to take a quick aside here and remind the listeners that on the payerrevolution.com website, we have a, a short little rant about Haven Healthcare, this project from Amazon and Citibank and Berkshire Hathaway, and what lessons I personally took away from the short rise and, and the failure fall of, it. Yeah. of that particular organization. Didn't take long. I was shocked at how quickly uh, it went down. Yeah, and yet it was never really the answer. Yes. Yeah. Well, Dennis, it's been great talking to you. I want to wrap up with one more question that I like to ask people. And that is, what do you suggest as a first step? Something that a CEO, CFO, business owner could do today to either improve their situation or just to change their relationship with the topic of employee health care. I think the simplest question they could ask and ask of their broker is, are you familiar with level funding or partial self-funding? Educate me. And at that point in time, they either receive the proper education or they're being informed that the broker doesn't know anything about it. 
If the broker has knowledge and experience, fantastic for the employer. If the, emplo if the broker does not have experience, then that employer needs to find a different broker consultant. Yeah, what is the reluctance to find a new broker? Mm, comfort, they get comfortable with somebody. A lot of times it might be a family member or a longtime friend, but that doesn't mean that that family member or a longtime friend is doing what's best for the employer. So seek out those that think outside of the box. We don't ever want to hurt anyone, but we want them to look at things differently and find a different model to move forward, just like Uber did. All right. Well, uh, I've got an article on the website about six questions you can ask your broker to determine whether she is a knowledgeable source of information about self-funding. Self-funding is really the lever of the payer revolution. It gives you information and it gives you money. And those are the two things that you need to have to run a revolution. So I'll, I'll link to the show notes on this, Dennis. It's been great Thank you, Gwen. talking to you about this. I yes. uh, appreciate all you do. I'm very passionate about this. Okay. Thank you, Gwen. Well, thank you. And we'll be back again in two weeks with another interview with a great resource for uh, the payer revolution, tools, thoughts, and ideas about how you can change your relationship with your employee healthcare plan. Until next time. Viva la Revolución!